You're listening to the MoneyWeb Now podcast series with Simon Brown. Live streamed every weekday at 6.30 a.m. It's Tuesday, 16 January. I'm Simon Brown coming at you live and loud from the MoneyWeb Global Headquarters in Johannesburg, South Africa. On the show today, Pietli Radenhaus from Herenia Capital Advisors. Uh, the uranium, I, I, I had a look at the chart, 15-year highs. Uh, Pietli's got some ETFs there. Christo Devet from Luno, South Africa. SEC has listed 11 Bitcoin ETFs. The big question is, are we going to see one locally? The JC said no in the past. Will they change their mind? And then Danny von Furen from Sovereign Trust SA, starting a business in Dubai tax implications and potential residency status. The show is brought to you by Stanlib. Visit stanlib.com to get in touch with one of their investment specialists. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. Morning headlines for MoneyWeb. Missed opportunity sees Telcom lose half a million broadband customers. These are the old DSL customers that it simply didn't migrate across to fiber, losing billions in revenue. Uh, business day, Cape Town sets record for foreign tourists. Uh, more than 317,000 travelers from overseas arrived in December alone. Morning markets. Uh, the U.S. was closed yesterday for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Over in the east, it is red. Sydney down 0.8%. Tokyo off a third of a percent. Hong Kong down 1.5%. And Tencent down 2.2%. Commodities also all red. Gold, 2,054. Brent, 77.92. Platinum, 918. Palladium, 971. Rand, 1876. Bitcoin, 42,700. Top 40 opening call, red open, 450 points down. That is two-thirds of a percent weaker. MoneyWeb now on the money. Also available on podcast. Starting now with uh, Petri Raiden, has Herenia Capital Advisors. Petri, appreciate the early morning. You and I have chatted uranium before. You've been bullish on it. I happened to, to be looking at my list of commodities uh, over the weekend uh, and noticed that uranium was trading at levels from sort of 2011, uh, 2008, certainly multi-year decade highs. What's the driver here? This is just, I think, everyone decided uranium and nuclear was nothing, and now suddenly nuclear is making a, a, a comeback. Look, uh, morning, Simon, and thank you for, for having me. And I think, uh, yeah, I think we've spoken about this in the past. It's Nuclear is actually the only real green energy alternative that's sustainable. We've mm-hmm. seen that, um, you know, solar panels are fantastic for the individual home, but on a large scale, they really are um, expensive and heavy on mining and heavy on the environment. Production of them is is not really... What we're doing is we're, we're shifting carbon emissions further down the supply chain into Africa, <laughs> really, where... The minerals are coming from to to, to manufacture these uh, these solar panels. So, I think the argument that we'd made last time uh, we chatted was around how regulators around the world will eventually get to a point where they'll kind of paint uranium and nuclear energy as green. Right? Mm. Um, if we look at the the primary reasons why people why uranium and nuclear energy has such a bad name is because we have you know from time to time these nuclear power stations that uh, have meltdowns or, or explosions or whatever the case and that can be really devastating to the environment however if you add up all the environmental damage that nuclear power stations and accidents have had uh, on the impact or the impact that they've had on the environment 
and you compare that to what oil has done, yeah, oil's still much worse, right? Uh, and and in a lot of cases, the the um, accidents, the nuclear-related accidents, were you know mostly human error, things that hopefully we can learn from. So uh, I think that you know the the argument is that. As time goes by, this becomes a green energy. And if you look at it from a from a regulatory standpoint, it's interesting to me to see a line in the sand between let's call them the Western and the Eastern nations, or the the NATO and the BRICS nations. Right? Uh, almost all of the BRICS nations, except South Africa, um, are building power nuclear power stations, uh, as where almost all of the NATO nations are, are dismantling them, which is an interesting shift. Yeah, and, and certainly we've we've seen. I take your point. I mean, there's talk around us doing some for base load. A key thing then is some of the ETFs. I mean, I think the one that you've referred to in the past is uh, URA, which is a, a sort of the mining and production of nuclear components. Um, and then my memory says there was another one, but I can't remember what it was. Uh, it's URNM. So uh, URA is a ETF more focused on the spot price of uranium, mm-hmm. uh, while URNM is more focused on the uranium mining uh, side of the equation. Gotcha. So gotcha. those are the two. URNM and URA are both, uh, you know, key components of our of our long term portfolio. Yeah, I take point. Yeah, as I understand, yeah, you say you've been holding it for a while, and just having a quick squeeze. Yeah, I mean, we've been seeing some uh, fairly solid returns from those coming through, making sense. As I said, uranium price itself at uh, what ten, fifteen year highs. Peter Redenhurst, Serenia Capital Advisors, appreciate the early morning. Your money gives a damn. If it could protest and sign petitions, your money would. But your money can do more than that. When you invest in Stanlib's Infrastructure Investment Fund, beyond getting solid returns, you are helping to build a more sustainable future through job creation and positive economic growth. Damn right you are. Invest for more impact at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. MoneyWeb now on the money. I'm chatting with Christo De Witt. He's Luna SA Country Manager. Christo, appreciate the time today. Last week, the SEC in the US finally approved 11 Bitcoin ETFs. This has been a long road and them rejecting a couple of times and saying no. But this is, in a sense, a big deal for crypto. I mean, it's another, I mean, in a sense, growing up of crypto and entering mainstream financial markets. Rightfully so, Simon. It's an absolute watershed moment for the industry. As you mentioned, it's been a long time coming. The first ETF application in the US with the SEC was filed, you know, just over 10 years ago. Multiple rejections coming in. And eventually we got to this point where last week those 11 ETFs were approved. And there was a lot of optimism in the run up to this. We saw that in the momentum and the price movement Mm. that we saw. Now we see that that optimism or excitement has a little bit attracted if we just look at it from a a pricing point of view. But I don't think we should just take short-term view on it that these ETFs are just, you know, signaling that the price movement should be the signal of success, but rather take a more longer, medium to longer term view on looking what the ETFs actually mean for the industry and for Bitcoin as a whole. I take your point on that. And I mean, you know, I was speaking with someone ahead of the announcement and they were like, oh, institutions can buy. I mean, we've been able to buy, whether as a private client or an institution, obviously, exchanges such as Luno. I suppose some mandates perhaps wouldn't allow it, but it means that a fund manager might not rush out and buy it but it's now on the radar and if we couple that 
locally, the FSCA bringing it on board as well. This really is opening those doors. Absolutely. And I think we look at that this signals the institutional adoption of it. So rightfully so, you know, any investor out there could have gone open the Luno account and buy Bitcoin. And now, you know, with the ETF open to the U.S. market, U.S. investors who might have been skeptic of opening a crypto exchange account and buying crypto themselves can now access cryptocurrency in a platform that, you know, one, most investors are familiar with and in an environment that they are more comfortable with. So it's that thing around accessibility. And also, you know, these fund managers are now able to diversify their portfolios and what they offer to their customers and their clients by making crypto part of that portfolio. So it speaks more to the accessibility. And as you said in your open comment around the maturing of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And we see that on the road for further maturing coming in the next, you know, months to years to come. Yeah, I mean, as you say that, I'm reminded that, of course, I mean, Bitcoin is, what, not even 15 years old yet. And you know, in the big world, that's still a fairly early in the process. What about locally? I mentioned there, when I mean, we've got the FSCA bringing it on board, exchanges such as yourselves who are applying for the FSP licenses. Do you think this kind of says to the JSC, who, as I understand, have rejected in the past, that maybe it's time? I think one important thing from this SEC approval in the US as the largest capital market is that the world usually tends to follow. Mm. So if the US green lights something, then it's most likely that other markets would follow. And we know that the US was very reluctant in approving this ETF. So I have no doubt that we could potentially see a locally hosted ETF coming and then that the JSE you know, might have a, a change of mind going forward. But also with the licensing regimes, with cryptocurrencies now being financial products, crypto exchanges and other crypto companies need to hold financial services provider licenses. This is also a step forward in cryptocurrency maturing and bringing cryptocurrency into that institutional fold, which, you know, as us in the industry is really such a game changer because it just broadens that accessibility. And as you say, you know, Bitcoin as such is less than 15 years old. It's it's really a maturing and bringing into the mainstream. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when I sold my first coins and it was... It was a long time ago, and I can't remember how I sold them, but I remember it was a process. It was not fun at all. And I got my $200 a coin, which shows when I sold them, but it wasn't fun. Now it's so much easier. We're talking Bitcoin particularly, but of course, crypto is the bigger industry. This must also open the door for Ethereum, maybe some stable coins, certainly not the altcoins, but of those sort of the big daddies in the room. I think so. I mean, we saw on the approval, there was initial excitement. The Bitcoin price shot up to, you know, 21 month high of around mm-hmm. $49,000, retracting now over the last few days, you know, back to that 42000 mark or just above the $42,000 mark. But interesting what we saw is that Ethereum, the price, you know, started increasing as well as that optimism started rising on, you know, could this signal the potential of an Ethereum ETF in the US? And I definitely think, you know, the other, you know, main cryptocurrencies, you know, of over 20,000 that's available, we will only maybe look at maybe the top 20 that accounts for more than 90% of the cryptocurrency market cap. I definitely think that there's some optimism in that sense that it broadens the number of cryptocurrencies that might be brought into this institutionalized view as well. So a lot of optimism in that sense. And I think, you know, this lays the foundation for further development and definitely something to keep your eye on. Yeah, as you said up front, it's an industry which is still fairly young, still growing and undoubtedly maturing. And this is, I think, I I don't know, to me, this seems to be the really big step in that process. Krista DeWitt, Luna SA Country Manager, always appreciate the time. 
That's our question today, our poll on LinkedIn and Twitter. So the new ETFs, and there are 11 of them that suddenly flooded into the U.S. markets last week. Are you buying any of them? Um, I, I already already hold some, some Bitcoin on, on an exchange, uh, but this is a simpler process. Or perhaps you just don't know interested in crypto or maybe waiting for a JSE ETF. Have your vote, have your say, LinkedIn and Twitter. There's no postponing the inevitable. Your money knew this day would come. And you know what? It can hardly wait to start giving some back to you. When you invest in Stanlib's fixed income funds, you can retire earning a regular income off your investments. Invest for more certainty at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib is an authorized financial services provider and a registered manager. MoneyWeb now on the money. Jenny and I with her, Danny von Furen, uh, business development consultant at Sovereign Trust SA. Danny, appreciate the early morning. You and I have chatted around uh, residency and the like in, in, in uh, sort of, we've looked at Western Europe. Uh, if memory serves, I think we've touched on Mauritius. But Dubai has been attracting South Africans as well, particularly for company registrations. In a recent note, you mentioned that what, we've got almost 2,400 South African companies registered with the Dubai Chamber of Commerce. What is the, the attraction of of, of, of Dubai. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Simon. Well, there's multiple things. I think Dubai, not on its own as a city, but mm. maybe specifically if we look at the UAE as a confederation, it has offered and it's really proven itself as a leading global business hub and not just a business hub but also an investment hub and not only south africans worldwide we see a lot of investment going into that area because of the rewards that are seen at the end and of course the the diversification that that country that area offers us yeah, I take your point on that. And in the note you put out, you also pointed out that there was an amendment which allowed uh, uh, paving the way for 100% foreign ownership. But there are different types of companies that you can set up. And I suppose it's it's important. You know, in South Africa, it's it's pretty much you've got a PTY. Um, you know, and then the question is, you know, the, the, are you going to be for profit or not? And if you're not profit, different story. But they have different types of companies. It's important to know those differences and, and, and which works for an individual. Absolutely. And I must say, doing business in the UAE hasn't been as simple as it is now. So they have moved over the years to make it simple, and they really base it off their legal system. And it's important Mm -hmm. to understand that there are various types of primary business that can be conducted there. But what the government has allowed for is key sources of law that has introduced specific zones. So although they are, for example, a mainland company that you can establish, and that's quite simple, and the ownership isn't necessarily always 100% foreign ownership that is allowed, mm. there are these free zones that they've established for general or industry-specific activities. So although it's relatively easy doing and starting a business in the UAE, the reality is that it is very much industry and activity driven. And there are over 50 of these free zones in the UAE, in addition to the mainland uh, sectors that they allow. Is that, if I'm understanding correctly, because I mean, the, the one sense, I think a lot of folks would think, oh, we could almost just put a, a, a holding company uh, in Dubai and then, you know, have your assets in South Africa or something. Is there almost a sense of requirement that you are actually an active business in the, the, the UAE in one sense or another? 
Yes, and and it's important if you, it's a good point that you've mentioned that if you're looking at just a holding company, for example, mm. when you're registering, that's what you'll be limited to, okay. you know, and that's mm. not necessarily what someone specifically wants. They want to have the infrastructure, the administration, the services that are backed by a free zone, and of course, the protection of licensing and regulation in that area. And it's very important when someone sits and they consider setting up in the UAE that they don't end up having additional costs because they register a company that is going to limit them and they cannot do what their intention is in terms of expanding. So although we have over 2,000 South Africans Mm -hmm. or South African affiliated businesses, we need to ask how many of those are on the, the trajectory that they intended based on their, their registration. Yeah, I mean, that comes back to the point, know those differences. Tax regime, my understanding is it's a, it, it's, it's a, it's a tax friendly, I think is the phrase I'm looking for, um, and also a residency status friendly. But let's touch on tax, um, a tax friendly environment for, 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 for companies as well. So we've seen with the introduction, specifically in our UAE office as sovereign, we've seen that the government has been very calm in their approach of of adjusting the tax from a corporate tax perspective Mm -hmm. and introducing a 9% taxation on corporate net profits above 300, just over 300,000 dirham for the year. And that's at a rate of 9%. Now, it's good that you've mentioned it is a friendly rate because it is. It's still under the general guidelines of the OECD's 15%. It's very competitive. And they really, their goal was to cement their position as a leading global business investment hub. And they've done that. At Sovereign Trust and SA, we've seen an increase in inquiries and the incorporation of these structures following that because we are seeing clients are inclined to pay tax and be encouraged to pay tax if they are rewarded accordingly Mm -hmm. based on the services offered in that jurisdiction. And is there, last question, residency status with with setting up companies? Residency is very vast in the UAE and a common one really would be either through the company, which would be an entrepreneurial route, for example. That's very popular mm-hmm. for our entrepreneurs from South Africa. It could be people going over, especially we see the younger groups, they go over, they get visas in terms of work. But it also is also popular looking at your golden visa. It's not as high a requirement in terms of capital. And the same goes for your uh, freelancer route. There's a lot of options. And in the UAE, there are different free zones, about five, that allow you to obtain residency just by setting up that company with a very small share capital requirement. Okay, so nice and simple in that regard as well. We'll leave it there, Danny Fonfuren, Business Development Consultant, Sovereign Trust SA. Appreciate the early morning. That's it for today. We were chatting with Wayne McCurry uh, yesterday. We were talking around the, the U.S. Uh, CPI and PPI data, which had come out uh, Thursday and late Friday. CPI, a little higher than expected. PPI, a little lower than expected. We asked you, when do you think the Fed will start cutting rates? The market is betting 69% that it'll happen in March. Wayne said, sure, maybe, why not? But we asked you, uh, just over half of you said mid-year was most likely. A fifth each said March, uh, with the the other fifth saying much later in the year. The rest, a couple of percentage points, were saying not this year at all. Uh, it's going to be 2025. And I hope that small amount is very wrong. We need the rate cuts. Have your vote, have your say, LinkedIn and Twitter.
This show is brought to you by Stanlib. Visit stanlib.com to get in touch with one of their investment specialists. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. We're live every weekday morning. The MoneyWeb website's in the app, 6.30 a.m. podcast, just after 7. Thanks to my team, Eddie, Nobuchle, Nicole, to you for listening, my guests for their time. My name is Simon Brown. This is MoneyWeb Now. We'll chat again tomorrow. You've been listening to another MoneyWeb Now podcast, posted every weekday at 7 a.m. on moneyweb.co.za. MoneyWeb Now, on the money.